Hello and welcome to this episode of the Reimagining Work podcast. And today uh, we have a special guest, and it is Richard Martin. Richard Martin um, is a writer, editor, and consultant, and an all-round wonderful man, and very interesting, and has some great ideas to share. So, um, looking forward to this conversation a lot. Are you ready? Yes, I am. Thanks for great. the welcome. You want to say a hello, Rockier? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was waiting for you to to give me the opportunity, but yes, hello, <laughs> hello, Richard. Hello. Good to have you on board. Thank you. Um, well, you're welcome. You're very welcome. Um, so I introduced you as a writer, editor, and consultant. You have um, recently started up a, a business called Indologenesis. I wonder if you want to say a little bit about that and anything else about yourself to introduce yourself. Okay. Well, started started life as a freelancer this month. So um, I took the name Indologenesis because that's the handle I've been using on Twitter and other social platforms. So that's what people know me as. Um, the background to the name, um, Indolo is actually... Uh, a regional symbol from the southeast of Spain and it's of a little man holding a rainbow which is supposed to protect you from the elements and it's actually a, originally a cave painting, a rock painting. Um, so it's it's really from ancient man and the reason I chose that is I used to live in that region of Spain as a child and it's it's just got personal memories for me. But also I'm, I'm a strong believer in history, culture, the fact that we use the past as a scaffolding for our present. So you know, everything we, we do now, we're learning from the past and building on it. So that was one of the attractions of Indolo. Genesis has two meanings, really. There's the obvious one, new beginning, new start. But also, um, I'm a passionate um, cyclist, and the road, road bike brand that I use is Genesis. So I, I alighted on the, the cycling link by putting the two together. Mm. One of the things I enjoy about your writing, Richard, is um, that is you're incredibly articulate and fluent. It's very beautiful to read, and you bring in everything that you've just mentioned, really. And I think that's really important these days that you 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 narrate things that are going on in the world of work, but you bring in cycling and you bring in history and you bring in culture and music and film. And I know you're passionate about film as well. Um, you, you're currently writing a co-writing a book um, around generalism in the workplace and I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about your ideas of generalism because it's one of those words that can easily be get misunderstood or misconstrued but I know you have a particular take on it. Well I, I do. I, I, generalism can be misunderstood. It can be a, can be used as a, a way of um, misaligning people and, and denigrating their capabilities. Um, there's there's a particular model which uh, it, it shows a specialist as uh, in terms of a graph as sort of hitting this high peak and a generalist just as flatlining. That's not my approach to generalism at all. And I guess the the approach that Kenneth Mickelson and I are taking in exploring the value of the generalist in the workplace is really thinking of of the polymathic generalist, um, somebody with a number of deep skills. Um, so I've used this term called WWW people, which has, has again, two meanings, really. So one is about having breadth and depth of skills. So a generalist might be somebody who is truly a polymath and has a number of deep disciplines that, that maybe, um, maybe don't seem to belong together, but they use them as a way of cross-pollinating ideas. Um, 
and it's it's very different to the traditional T-shaped model that we see taking place in, in a lot of individuals' careers where they have one deep specialism, they progress up a corporate ladder as they develop this particular area of interest and particular skill set, and then they hit a management position and then they sort of plateau and they get a, a, some shallow, broad management skills um, as well as their deep specialism, and there, therefore you, you get this T-shape. I think with with the polymathic generalists or the WWW people, they, they might have a number of deep disciplines that they can draw on as well as that breadth, which means that they they might be more strategic thinkers. They're better at joining up ideas and, and painting big mm. pictures rather than uh, quite narrow ideas. Um, are, these, are, are these people that go more in an, in a, in an S uh, through a career than in a straight line and plateau out. I mean, they, they can I, move. I think so. I, I think so. Yeah. I think I draw my personal experience there as well, where I have certainly, it's not just so much as S is just a zigzag all over the place in, in what I've yeah. done and the different industries I've worked in. Uh, John mentioned film earlier. I'm, I'm a film academic by background, and that was going to be my my original career. I was going to go into academia and teach film history. Um, but in the end, I went into freelance writing and editing in the 90s and then teaching myself how to code websites. I worked in web content management and consultancy. Um, I then worked in the public sector for the NHS in, in the UK and, and for the IVF regulator. So I was in more regulatory, legalistic kind of roles. Um, I've been in sort of information, knowledge management, change management. And the role I've just left was actually in the, the rail industry. So you know, another completely different sector, again, working for a non-profit organization. So I've zigzagged all over the place. And I guess I've, I've had opportunities to acquire different skills, apply different interests. Um, but I've also found ways of joining those together. So John was mentioning my writing earlier and how I bring different things to play. Um, that's partly because of this broad range of interests, but partly because I don't see work as being this self-contained separate system away from the rest of life. It's all integrated. And uh, I use my interests in sport or in, in literature and film and art as as lenses through which I make sense of work. Yeah, um, true. Yeah. I'm 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 a I'm a I'm a a car enthusiast, uh, like so many, many others. And I always uh, try and come up with metaphors that are car-related in order for me to understand something. So it's kind of, uh, um, and I, I don't write about it though, but it's something that I usually do when I talk about something to, or explain something that, you know, you know I, I use a car metaphor because, you know, it's the most predominant thing. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I've had uh, a somewhat similar career where I'm not an academic. I, I left school very early, but I've also in IT worked in in projects, and you work from uh, you do a project at a certain customer, and then you move to another one. You do six months here, eight months there, twelve months there, and you get a, a huge variety of of jobs and and titles and 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 clients and sectors and. It can provide a really, really broad base of of uh, things that you can um, uh, rely on uh, certain expertises. So yeah, that's that's uh, it's very interesting. There's another aspect to the yeah. WWW people which I wanted to bring into play, which is 
you know, WWW also stands for the World Wide Web. And I think that there's a certain type of person now who who's quite proficient at navigating the digital network world that we, we're sort of forming and, and existing in now. And um, I, I think that's quite interesting, mm -hmm. the digital fluency that some people can bring to bear. And so they, they've got these deep skills and interests, but they've also got competency in, in the digital world and they operate in networks. And I find that really interesting as well. Mm. Mm. Um, I'm just listening to both of you sort of describe your, your, your work life trajectories and sort of thinking it probably makes absolute sense to you when you look back. And I think about mine and it looks like it makes absolute sense to me when I look at the sort of zigzags I've taken. Um, and and I, the, the, the title of the podcast has come to mind, Reimagining Work. And it took me back to the 80s when I was, um, I think I was at university or just out of university. And I read Charles Handy's book, The Age of Unreason. And one thing that stuck with me, and 30 years might have diluted my memory of this, was his, his idea of a portfolio career, which at the time yeah. was just completely radical. There was a whole bunch of things, I think, that, me as an individual and, and people in the world of work needed to learn in order to make that sort of thing happen. But it was like looking at a crystal ball. And I look back at my career, listen to you describe yours, you two. And that's kind of what you, oh, you've got a, this sort of portfolio, but it's more meaningful than just, I want to do lots of things. I mean, I know from your writing, Richard, that you, um, you, you are very um, considered in the sorts of ideas that you put out. And I know from conversation with you is that you're a, you're a great thinker to my mind. You make meaning of things. Um, so I, I just am fascinated just listening to you two saying this is this is the world of work. We are um, we're kind of living this picture that Charles Handy reimagined back in the 80s and I just, I'm thrilled by that because I remember reading it going I want a working life like that. I, well, I I'm think, probably I think, just going to end up getting a job you know but you know. <laughs> well I think that's been one of the attractions for me about going back to the freelance life. The, the, uh -huh. the potential to enjoy a portfolio career again. Mm. And to actually, if I want to write about film, to do that. Yeah. Um, and if I can work with organizations and help them and do consultancy work, that's great too. Mm. And if I can do more writing work, fantastic. But to have variety is really what I crave. And I haven't necessarily been able to do that in, in some of the jobs I've had over the last several years. In terms of it making sense, the career I've had. I think it makes sense retrospectively. You That's can, what I mean. you yeah, can structure yeah, your own right. story, but That's right. in, the, in the moment, it probably doesn't make sense at all. That's right. And, yeah. and I think there are many people within our, our communities and our networks who, who talk a lot about serendipity and curiosity. And I think that's been a driver behind some of the, sort of the, the left and right turns that I've taken during my career. Mm. It's just serendipitous encounters have led to to new opportunities, follow your own curiosity, yep. and then acquire a new skill. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I mean, acquiring a new skill, I think that's central to a lot of the stuff that both of you are talking about. In order to have got to the places where you're both at in your respective careers, there's some skills that you've acquired, a lot of them, you know, kind of by osmosis, if you like. Or, you know, I think about, I mean, te technology is my least, one of my least sort of strengths. Um, but even I have had to learn what what the word download means, which in the 1980s was, didn't probably didn't even exist for the average person. And I've had to actually learn how to download. So there's some basic things that, in order to live in the world of work, we've had to, to some skills that we've had to acquire. And I'm thinking I'm thinking now about you know how you um, take your um, WWW people 
um, concept and thinking as a consultant. How? What are the skills or the things or the, the 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 bits of knowledge or information that you think people could do with in order to 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 get hold of this thing that you're you're working on? Before I address that question, mm -hmm. can I just go back to a point you make? Yeah. It's um. I. <laughs> I'll address your question and then it will emerge during that. Let's yeah. do it that way. So, um, one of the things I want to talk to organisations about hmm. is the fact that we've we've landed ourselves in a in an era of hyper specialism, and one of the effects that has had is creating these organisational silos that people constantly are barking about. Yeah. Oh, well, we can't do anything. We're stuck in the silo. We don't understand what's going on yeah. elsewhere in the organisation. Partly that's because we, we keep recruiting along a particular narrow path and we, we need a specialist in a particular area and we recruit specialists who are absolutely brilliant at what they do but they can't join things up and they can't see the big picture and they don't understand the context in which they operate and we constantly do it and one of the, the things Kenneth and I have been discussing is how the WWW person, the polymathic generalist because they can navigate across these different silos, they are able to cross-pollinate. They do see the big picture. They are the ones who do the, store, the corporate storytelling, paint the big picture, do the horizon scanning, put everything in context, put what the organization is doing in, term, in context in terms of the industry as a whole or the broader economy. Um, so it's, it's really... It's making organizations understand that there is a, a role for different kinds of individual in, in an organization. And that if we continue to follow some of the practices that we have done over the last number of decades, then, then we'll, we'll never break that pattern. We, we'll, we'll constantly go back to a, a very transactional form of recruitment where we, we have a, a cookie cutter shape idea of the, the gap we need to fill and so in looking at new recruits into our organization, we're only looking in terms of that cookie cutter. We're looking backwards. We're looking at what did you do in the past and what are your qualifications rather than what is the potential for the future? What would you add to the team that we already have in place? What, you know, what dynamic opportunities do we have by bringing you into the mix? Um, so it's always rear view mirror stuff rather than looking through the windscreen and the going forward and potential. And so I, I think there are, there are a lot of issues in organizations now where we're still slaves to the job title and the job description. And therefore that creates these labels, these constraints, these pigeonholes into which we slot people. And, and that's, that's actually really hampers the way organizations operate. So I'm thinking there's, there's, a, there's a new way of doing things because I'm, I'm not sure that you could just say we need to hire a bunch of people and we don't have any kind of... I'm being a little bit extreme and silly, yeah, yeah. And like, you know, but well, it's like where's the new bit that we get to? It's, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a third way because that way you've described is, is reaching the end of its shelf, if it already hasn't reached the end of its shelf life. You, you can't just say, well, let's get a bunch of people and we'll work it out when we're all in the room. There is a thing about you, you, the, you the, the boundaries of the constraints. At, you can look at certain uh, qualifications within uh, a, a resume of somebody and if if you're good enough, then you can in, instead of like oh he has he's got a, like a, a lot of jobs, a lot of different, 
and uh, that's not good. We want somebody who's who's really steady. But you can also see that that person has been very uh, a huge variety of things which are applicable to whatever role that you're looking for, and this doesn't happen enough as far as I'm concerned because they look very specific for very specific skill sets to fit that very specific uh, role that they want to fill in and they don't see the big picture so they don't look at everything and see well you know this guy or this girl has a certain skill set and uh, but you know a certain experience uh, and, and we can definitely get the person to do whatever it is that we want them to do and then maybe a little bit more and they usually don't do that and most of them are, are scared when when they have you have great variety on your resume for instance instead of seeing the value in it they they don't want that it's like what do we do with this person yeah yeah well I, I think there's there are people who um, through their education and through the career that they opt to follow they specialize to specialize and then there are other people who actually generalize to specialize and so they they acquire a number of broad skills and they apply a number of broad interests but then they apply it in a specialist context and then I, I wrote about this in one of my recent blog posts um, and it partly was um, triggered by conversations I had with a, a guy called Carl Gombrich who, who's um, an academic at UCL and he's running a, a joint Bachelor of Arts and Sciences program and I find it fascinating that you've got people going into the, the academic environment who have the opportunity to work with faculty to structure their own degrees rather than having to follow a, a preset program. So if, if they've got an end goal in mind, working with faculty, they can put together a generalist range of subjects to then apply that. And, you know, I'm, I made one, one up in the post, but it was about somebody who... Um, who wants to work in in East Africa and it's about um, water sources and providing pure water for, for the local populace but what could they do in terms of of the academic work they did before they acquired a job and what, what could they put together they could study languages they could study environment they could study geography and geology and elements put all of those together so you get this broad range of, of generalist subjects packaged together to actually specialize in the future whereas you get some people that go through their, their academic careers and then their subsequent work careers where they are going to be a, a specialist in recruitment for example and that's what they do they do work that's all about recruitment and then they apply well some of that work now is going to get replaced by software or it's mm. under threat by software mm. so suddenly these people what, what do they do next the generalist, they've got other things they can draw on. The person who's hyper-specialized in their career is suddenly under real threat of, you know, what do I do now? Mm. And, and, and you know, this, this idea of purpose gets raised then. You know, well, what's my purpose? If, if my purpose has always been this all through my career, all through my life, this is what I do, mm. and now a machine can do that. And, and, and this goes back to a point I, I wanted to raise a few minutes ago mm. in response to one of the things you said, which was, I mentioned in the 90s I learned how to code websites now I taught myself HTML CSS I was hand coding websites it's not a skill I need anymore you know I've got that basic understanding but we've got access to things like WordPress and stuff so I was a maker in the 90s 
now I'm just using somebody else's stuff. It's all been automated for me. Mm -hmm. I just drop mm -hmm. in my content. Um, so, so going back to this idea of acquiring skills, you lose them as well because there's no place to practice them. Sure, sure. They go absolutely. I mean, that kind of fits within a, a model that I kind of or lens I see the world through. That we they they get rusty. They fade into the background when they're when they're less used. I think of old skills I used to apply when I was a teacher back in my early days. And when I sometimes daydream to those years, I go, that's right, I used to do this, and I used to be able to do that really well. I'd have to really work hard to bring that back to my, in, into my repertoire. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, you know, and I, I lived in Spain as a child. I was fluent, and then I lost it all. Yeah. I'd, I, my first degree is in Spanish, mm -hmm. and I, I acquired another degree of proficiency in the language again. It's yeah. all, I wouldn't say it's all gone, but I would struggle to to have a meaningful conversation now in sure. Spanish. I could probably read it, but to talk it would be, you know, I'd really have to think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But it all adds to your, your. I mean, whether or not you're now able to, to, to have a good conversation in Spanish, it does add to your whole uh, experience that you have. I mean, everything that you've learned and uh, any skills that you had or, or have lost or whatever, whether or not you're very proficient in them at the moment, they do add to the whole thing. I mean, your understanding of WordPress is better than that of uh, the next person. I, I was going to point at John, but... Yeah, better than know, mine, it, absolutely. It, yeah, yeah, but it's true, because you have a certain knowledge of, of how HTML works, how CSS works. I mean, if you would want to change anything on your website, or tweak it a little bit here and there, you'd be able to do it. And um, so, yeah, everything that you do does add to your experience, your personality, and your ability to learn other things and to adapt to certain environments that you get into. Oh, absolutely. And I believe that that is very val valuable for uh, in a corporation where you have people who, instead of having that one very specific skill set, and they might be very good at it, but as soon as there's a shift one way or another, that person is going to be redundant really quickly, and you need people who are, as a company, should be very flexible, so you need to be, you know, have people who work on project this, or project X, or project Y, and so they can develop a certain broader skill set, which makes them more flexible. Hmm. John? Well, the, I mean, I think they all. I, I'm agreeing with that that point very much. That they the skills you learn aren't necessarily say the, the skill is being able to have a conversation in Spanish. I used to be conversational in Turkish, and I suppose if I went back, I'd be able to strike up a very basic conversation with people. But it's been over 20 years. But what I do know is that there's some skills that were particular to that particular language that it has kind of enhanced my way of seeing the world. And I think about people who maintain to their dying day that Latin is something that should be back in the school curriculum because they know from experience it's helped them in, in, in understanding logic and how things are put together and the origin of our own language. And So there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes along with it. It's not just, it's not, again, it comes back to that specialism thing. It's not just about I've learned Spanish so I can speak Spanish. I've learned a foreign language so it's done some things to my brain, some of which I probably aren't even aware of, but has made me that kind of well-rounded, you know, www person who can do lots of things quite well, actually. Um, I have a, a very little example of something that I've noticed. Uh, like I had a conversation with my mom, 
And my mom, obviously, she's like 70-something, and um, and she's trying to stay up to date with everything, so that's cool. Mm-hmm. But she was... There was she was there was some kid, and she had some saying, and it doesn't really matter what kind, and the kid didn't understand that, and then she did another one, saying, and the kid didn't understand that too, or either or neither, whatever, and um, so my mom asked, uh, "Don't you learn that in school?" And they said, "No, we don't," and well. We did learn them, and and I believe that you know sayings they go some go real ba- years back. I mean decades. They're really old, and I think it's an enrichment of language, mm-hmm. and it's a way to learn about metaphors and other stuff. Mm-hmm. And I believe that as soon as children don't learn those anymore then they lose a little bit of culture, a little bit of the language, a little bit of creative thinking in something that they can do with language. And that's the same thing when you learn any other skill, everything you do adds to the whole. And I, I found it very sad that kids in school don't no longer learn those kind of things. I mean, yeah, yeah I think it's absolutely. valuable. Absolutely. I mean, we, we have to be very careful. One false move and okay. we grumpy old men in this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I <laughs> let's not, let's bring the focus back to Richard. Let's well, and 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 the sort of the future of work. I'm um, that phrase. Um, there's 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 a, a set of ideas that that you have developed, Richard. Uh, one I'd like to hear a bit more also about your um, thinking around the peloton formations and what how that's informed your thinking and your writing. Okay. Um. Yeah, I think it's been quite convenient for me that as I rediscovered the passion for cycling, I I also started to think more about organisational structures and the way that companies operate um, and groups of people operate. And also um, what my preference is for the style of organisation I want to work for. Um, I think that's a really important point to make as well, actually, about preference, because there's a lot of people talking about the future of work, and like you, I find the, mm. the phrase um, problematic, to say the least. Yeah. But a lot of people um, are talking about work, the impact of technology, and how networks is going to suddenly re- replace the old, the old working structures. And yeah. I don't actually buy it. You know, I, I think I think there are a lot of us who have a preference for networks, and I'm one of them. I do have a preference for network kind of organizational structures and being a, a node in a, a a network of freelancers for example providing services mm. into a company might serve as a you know one, one node in in that network but I think the the uh, kind of in, industrial organizational structures that a lot of us are sort of kicking against they're not going away anytime soon and there's a lot of people who have a preference for that kind of structure yeah. They will prevail for a period of time, particularly as long as our sort of political structures follow that kind of model with a prime minister and then a cabinet and then junior ministers and then the others. You know, they've already got these rigid hierarchies in place, and we tend to copy as as humans. We copy what we see. Yeah. So until that disappears, there'll all be organisations that copy that kind of model. Nevertheless, in in thinking of 
of the network kind of structure that I prefer. Um, you think of it as sorts to use David Weinberger's phrase, you know, small pieces loosely joined, and yeah. and it made me think about the the cycling peloton and how that is comprised of a a number of teams. So you have this big group of individuals representing different teams, all with a common purpose, and in, in that they have to get from point A to point B, but actually all with different objectives. So each team will have different objectives. Each team will have a different leader, not just in terms of you know the their overall um, race leadership, but sure. on each day they will have different leaders as well. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. so you've got this idea of fluidity of roles, mm -hmm. fluidity of objectives. So, if if you take something like the Tour de France, you might have some teams who are going for the yellow jersey, which is awarded to the overall winner, and you'll have other teams who are chasing the king of the mountains, which is the polka dot jersey. Mm -hmm. and somebody else is chasing the sprint jersey. So they've they've all got different objectives, and then you've got other teams who who know they have nobody to contend for those kind of jerseys, that, that other teams have stronger stronger teams, stronger individuals. Nevertheless, they might have the objective simply to get long play on television and show their sponsor's jersey because mm. then their sponsor is happy, they're getting free advertising for hours and hours, and, and so the, the cycling team continues to exist because a sponsor continues to pay them. So there are all these different objectives, Within the team itself, you've got different roles, and on each day, depending on the terrain, one of those roles will take leadership of the team. Mm. So if they're going up a mountainous stage, the other eight riders in the team will be working for their best climber. If mm. they're on a flat stage, the other people in the team will be working for the sprinter. Um, they work together when they, they go into a team time trial. On on doing something like that, they're taking it turns to go to the front. One of mm -hmm. them is taking the wind, they're protecting their, their fellows behind them, then they peel off, somebody else comes to the front. So even even in that kind of stage, you've got rotating leadership happening. Mm -hmm. And I find that fascinating, that you, you have people who have the, the humility to step aside, that they can lead and then they can follow. Um, you have other individuals who know that their role in the team is to serve as a domestique, in effect, as a servant for the others. Mm. Nevertheless, they often take on what they call the road captain role. They are the leader of the team, the liaison with, with team directors in the car, um, and they're fulfilling a specific role. So I find it fascinating having this fluidity of roles and responsibilities. And I was thinking, well, how do I apply that to the workplace? What do mm. I learn from that? And I think of the kind of role I fulfilled over the last several years where I might have been working on a number of projects simultaneously. And on some of those projects, I might be the lead. And on others, I might be following somebody else's lead. Mm. And on yet others, because of having expertise in one particular area, I might simply be providing subject matter expertise. So actually, some of that kind of structure already exists in the workplace. But people don't see it because they're kind of tied to a job title and job description. You are head of this your responsibilities are X, Y, and Z. That's what it says in your, your job description. And I don't see that happening in, in the way that the cycling teams are operating. So I find that really fascinating. And then you've got different, different kind of characteristics, different people who excel at different disciplines where they become specialists in cycling. So the sprinter, their role is to, to win the stage, to throw their hands in the air, to advertise their sponsor. They're great communicators. And... If you ever watch the closing stages of a flat cycling stage, 
you'll see um, what they call sprint trains, which is a long line of, of riders with the mm. sprinter at the back of them who's shouting out guidance, instructions. He's, he's watching the other teams coming up. So he's a great communicator within the team. And he has this line of riders in front of him who keep peeling off until there's just one guy left in front of him who is his lead-out man. And then in the last 300 metres, they, they explode and, and sprint for the line, having just cycled you know, 100, 150 miles. It's, it's absolutely phenomenal what they do. True. And, and similarly, you, you see the, the climbers who do things that I, I, I just can't imagine. You know, the, the way they sail up those, those mountains, so it's like poetry in motion, some of them. And they're like great visionaries. And what they do, you know, they've been protected for a period of time. But actually, all the efforts at the end, and they make it look absolutely magnificent. And they're like these visionary CEOs leading people to places they never thought they could go to. Um, then you have the, the sort of what, what are called rulers, who are the steady, steady, solid riders who, who can tackle rolling landscapes and they just go for hours on end at the, the front of the peloton. They chase down breakaways. They're very good time trialists. They're, they're just, you know, they're, they're all rounders. And I guess for me, that's, that's really the equivalent to the generalists. You know, they, they can yeah. excel but they normally put themselves in service of others rather than yeah, being, being... given the chance and they, they, they win a stage, right? Absolutely. And then you've got what, what are known as the baroudeurs in French, sort of, you know, the attacking riders, who basically they don't give a crap about anybody and that they will attack the rest of the peloton continuously. They're the ones who often instigate the breakaways. Um, there's, there's a guy called Thomas Verkler, who, a French rider, who is... Um, He's very famous for his gurning on the bike. He's loved. He is absolutely loved by the cycling fan because he just has this devil-may-care attitude. He's hated by the fellow cyclists, though, because he just inflicts so much pain on them by constantly attacking, getting in breakaways, you know, making them have to chase after him. And you know that that's that's what's exciting to the spectator. What's excruciating for the other people in the peloton. But for me, you know, they're the change agents. They're the ones who don't care, who will give it a go, who will yeah. really try and challenge things. But then you look, um, you look at sort of the cycling event itself, and you realise the cyclists are just one system in in a whole bunch of interacting yeah. systems, yeah. just as work is. Mm. So, so you have the organisers who have to organise the whole route. You have towns who are hosting the beginning and the end of the stages. You have media flitting in and out of, of the race on motorbikes, following cars, hovering above them in helicopters. You've got all the road infrastructure in place, so you've got to control the fans so they don't spill out on the road. You've got to take into consideration all the road furniture, so the, the roundabouts, all the, the traffic lights, yeah. the, the um, level crossings at, at railway lines. Yeah, so you've got all these competing things, and then you've got the weather systems as well. So it could be snowing, it could be absolutely scorching, the road could be melting. Um, so all these different interacting systems, which I find fascinating as well. Mm. And then, in addition to the riders, you've got all the supporting staff for a cycling team. You've got the former riders who are acting now as directors of the team, who are providing guidance and advice working with the riders to give them a loose framework to, to yeah. operate under on any given day. You've got um, the supply chain. So you've got people making yeah. bikes. And you yeah. might have big manufacturing companies or you actually might have small specialists 
um, makers, uh, and I find that interesting. Sort of the craft against big industry; those two things coming into play. So I think cycling offers a lot of metaphors that I, I'm looking at, exploring, and and seeing how it applies to the workplace. And that's that's another book project I'm working on at the mm -hmm. moment. It's a great idea because it's it's you can uh, visualize it very well. I mean, what everything you're talking about, if you've ever um, watched uh, the Tour de France, I don't watch it all the time, but I've had like one summer where I didn't have anything to do, so I just watched the whole thing, and then you get really into it, then you start seeing things that you normally won't see if you just watch like only a small bit of it, and uh, especially when there's somebody who explains everything that's happening, so you mm -hmm. know. You understand what's happening, so you can visualize it very well. And the way you've been talking about it, I can actually see all the things that are going on, and it's it's a good metaphor. Yeah, I like it. I like the blog post too. So yeah, yeah you, you paint a very compelling picture of what work could be like. I mean, I think about you know you talked earlier about rigid hierarchies and things like that, which I agree. We're stuck with some of those um, because people, some people prefer certain ways of working and organizing their work. Um, but I was thinking about how that um, picture you paint is, is was really around, um, well, what came to my mind was purpose. People were there to, to achieve a purpose together. And I think that, for me, is where the kind of the, the messiness around hierarchies, good or bad, comes in. Because it leaves out sometimes the question of what's your purpose? Why, why are you here to do something? And it's, some of it, people will be drawn to particular ways of working because it's their preference. And it's, there's a purpose that they can tune into. But I think that's a really important thing because purpose is not task or function or what we do at work. It's something bigger than that. And I think that's the compelling thing that you paint for me when you talk about the Peloton. Yeah, I, I think that the purpose thing, I think where, where I really see that coming into play is when you get a breakaway in cycling. So you, mm -hmm. you, you have the start of, of the stage. And then at some point, quite early on, you'll get a, a number of riders from different teams breaking away from the Peloton. And as long as as long as the teams feel that there's no threat to the overall leadership of the race in that breakaway, they might let it go. Let's yeah. get several minutes advanced. But then you see this fascinating thing where you have a group of individuals, many of whom will be from competing teams, who begin to cooperate with one another. They're, they're, working, in, they're working in partnership. So we, we are going to try and beat the peloton today. Here, you know, here's our goal. We're going to try and beat the peloton. We all have to get to the end of the stage. And we recognize that within this group, maybe only a few of us can win. Nevertheless, we're going to work together. And it's fascinating watching this interaction. Mm. Um, so they have a common purpose for a time-bound period. Mm. Um, they learn to cooperate, even though they're competing as well. And I, I find that fascinating. Mm. But if you think about any given organization, particularly a large, large organization, you've got competition within it constantly. Absolutely. People, people are competing for resources, for attention, mm -hmm. um, for their project to get the green light over somebody else's. For status, for love, for all yeah. of that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. that, for me, silos are the personification of that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I think that sort of, I mean, I, I just sort of think about, you know, could you imagine your stomach competing with your heart? Well, no. So there's something that's not quite right in how we do work. Yeah. There's a better way. Um, but, yeah, the, I, I'm, I'm, st I'm sticking with your word that you said before of fluidity. And if I, I think about what I would like work to be more like it's fluid. 
workplace yeah. is more fluid, less rigid and stuck on your job description or um, this is the role description, this isn't my job sort of thing. Um, yeah. But that's a great, not, a great that's deal more fluid. That's not my responsibility. That's not part of my 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 job description, so I'm mm. not going to be worried about it at all. Mm. Yeah, and and I think I've seen that with the, the whole you know specialist versus generalist thing. I, yeah. I think people who who lean towards a generalist, they the job description is the way they get through the door, and then they throw it away. That's right. Whereas a specialist is the person who lives and breathes their job description, and if it's yeah. not in the job description, then I ain't doing it. Mm-hmm. But you know, one of the attractions is the of the the peloton metaphor for me, and one I'm still exploring is yeah. is that it it represents the responsive adaptive organisation, and I find yeah. that really so. So it's it's not just about the fluidity of roles and individuals within it; it's about that organisation as a whole, as a whole, yes, and and how it responds to external factors. Yeah, and yeah, and, and if you think in in the corporate context, the biggest external factor you should be taking into consideration is the needs of your customers. Because yes. if you're not responding to those in an effective way, yeah. then you're not going to last. You know, there yeah, there just won't be a need for your company anymore. You'll disappear. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I know a couple of people who should listen to this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I like um, I still like the peloton metaphor because it's also where you have uh, the teams, like you said, uh, certain teams will go for the yellow jersey, for the green jersey, for the polka jersey or whatever. So there is definitely a certain strategy. They have their business goals. Yeah. And but as soon as as uh, a stage starts, there's no telling what's going to happen. Uh, there's you you lose a certain amount of control because you don't know the weather. You don't know whether or not somebody's going to escape uh, that you didn't count on and escapes uh, with a couple of others and are a little bit faster than you anticipated and you just can't catch him or you. You just start uh, chasing them, uh, hunting them down a little bit too late, and so there, a lot of flexibility is demanded within uh, the race itself uh, in order to obtain the business goals. And yeah, and that's I think something that's, that that. Right. I was just going to say that to that point that there are two other factors in play there, and what one's about mastery. So you've got you know, the individuals who are absolutely masters of of what they do. Um, the cyclists themselves, but you've also got autonomy, which is really important factor as well. And so, you get situations where teams will have an objective and they will plan for it, but only in terms of quite a loose framework. And, mm. and again, I find that really interesting. That I, I, I felt through my time working in organisations, I'm far more attracted towards frameworks than I am to policy and procedure because I find that too restrictive. And so you, you watch how some of these cycling teams apply their, their loose frameworks. And it's, it's really interesting, especially you know, when they achieve their objective. So the, the really good example is um, the teams that Mark Cavendish has been a part of. So he, he's one of the top sprinters in the world. And um, he was identified quite early on that he was the man who the Great Britain team would work for when the World Championships happened in Denmark a few years ago. And they took about two years planning for this. And they'd meet regularly, even though you had all these individuals who, who cycled for different teams. They were being brought together, discussing, working with the supporting team, thinking about mm. how they would work together to achieve this particular objective. 
nevertheless, on the day of the race itself, it's all down to the cyclists actually out on the road. And so they're, they're operating under this loose framework. They know their objective. They know they each have individual ro roles to fulfill. But they still have to react to everything that's happening around them. What are the other teams doing? What are the conditions like? Um, actually, we were going to put this guy in the front with so many laps to go, but we need him on the front now because we need to close down this particular situation. Mm. And, you know, they delivered. It all worked out. They got, they got Mark Cavendish to the last corner of the race ready for a bunch sprint and then he did his his piece mm. and then you, you see teams that Cavendish has written ridden for before so there's a team called HTC Columbia which no longer exists fascinating situation in a 2009 race um, they're cycling on the southern coast of France which is particularly windy and what they they decided to do was send ahead of the race a former cyclist and the team owner so they went out in their car followed the route, took into account the weather conditions, and then reported back by radio to the, the director sportif in his mm. car, who relayed the information to the cyclists over radio, and then it was down to them to, to make decisions. You know, how, cool, how are yeah. we going to do this? So they, they still got a degree of autonomy. They're getting guidance, they're getting information, but they're choos choosing as a team, as a collective, how they're going to apply this information. And um, what they what they opted to do is there was a particular sharp bend in the road, and they knew when it was coming up, and they decided that rather than being buried in the peloton, they would all go to the front of the, the race and just ride as fast as they could. And the effect was they completely fragmented the peloton, and they and a few others just rode away and won the stage. Mm. But it's, it's about reacting to the situation and having the freedom to do so, having rather than being absolutely rather than being constrained. And I find that you know. You see that a lot in cycling, and you know to be able to apply that in a workplace. Um, you know, going back to the the idea of a breakaway as well. You know, I, I think about projects, for example, I, and if you're operating in a modern way of working, if you think the future organisation might be slightly smaller than it is at the moment because certain functions have disappeared, they're replaced by software. You're, you're bringing certain specialists in to hold the fort. But then you might be operating with a network of freelancers who you're bringing together to do pieces of work. So you end up with the equivalent of the breakaway. You are forming a team, time-bound, to deliver a piece of work. Some of the people might be on your payroll. Some might be freelancers. Some might be suppliers. Some might be customers. You bring them together. You have common purpose. You deliver. You disband. Mm. I, I think, I mean, for me, that's, that's the working practice that, really appeals to me. So I was just going to say, I'm not going to ask you what the future of work looks like, but you just describe what the future of work yeah. looks like. <laughs> For me, <laughs> I've expressed a preference. Well, it makes absolutely, absolutely. absolutely. I, 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 you know I'm being a little bit silly. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you to gaze into a crystal ball. I, I have a similar um, reluctance to use the phrase, but it's there. Uh, if, if, I mean, one of the things that Roger and I like to do is reimagine, work. that's what we call it, reimagine work. What would it be like if, what if? So, you reimagine work. You've got a preference that you've set out there. Um, what what things do you see um, would improve organizations or work workplaces or working life for people? What one thing do you think you would change if you're only allowed one? <laughs> <laughs> it would actually be before people get to work. Even um, I, I'm, I'm applying this to the UK. But um, it probably applies to European countries too. 
I feel that in the UK we are forced to specialize at far too early an age. So at a very young age when we are extremely impressionable um, and when we're going through the turmoil of our teens and the, the uproar of hormones that happens then. We've we are got for- more important things to do than think about the future. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. But we are, ch- we are forced to choose um, subjects to study that then constrain us for the rest of our lives in terms of the degrees we can do if that's the route we go down or the, the apprenticeships we can do if that's the route we go down. But you know, at that really tender age, we are forced to make really key decisions about the subjects we study. And I just think that's, that's just inherently wrong. Um, mm. And so it's you, funny you think- because it's at, at that age, I mean, children can learn so much and so quick and they can absorb certain things in, in, a, in, a, in a way that adults have uh, very much difficulty with to do. So it, it makes a lot of sense, and I don't know what age you had in mind where you can actually make a choice, but you could, from, from a young age on, just keep it broad and, you know, have all those several disciplines, at least the mainstream disciplines, and grow up with that until you reach a certain age, like 16 or 17, and then from there you can you can choose whether you want to go to a certain specific or specialized uh, uh education or just go work or whatever yeah so I mean, yeah, what kind of age did you have in mind well i don't know i'm 45 now i still haven't decided what i, I want to do when i, I grow up i know I, I've, I've, always, <laughs> I've only just realized it's probably a question i, just, I should think about <laughs> I, I, I just i mean yeah, I, yeah. I, re, I reflect back in you know as a 13 year old being told i i couldn't do latin i had to do biology mm. uh, i mean that that seemed a madness to me and and so I ended up doing a degree in Spanish where Latin would probably have been quite useful to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to choose between geography and history. I would have liked to have done both. Mm. Um, and, and what's weird is that although I did do some scientific study, you know, it, I didn't appreciate it at the time. And it wasn't actually until I spent a year at a Spanish university while doing my first degree that I suddenly started to appreciate Spanish, uh, so, sorry, uh, appreciate sciences through the study of literature, because I suddenly understood yeah. the, the impact science had had on the modernists, for example, who, who, if you read any of my blog posts now, you'll see that I'm quite passionate about the modernists and, and what they've done in terms of the arts. Um, mm. And think, you know, seeing how the impact of Darwin and Einstein and Freud and people like that have, have had on, on our artistic endeavours. Um, but it took, it took until I was in my 20s to actually appreciate science. Mm. Um, but yeah. I, I wasn't able to have that sort of breadth of study that I would have liked to have done mm. earlier on. Mm. You know, so with a better foundation, I would have probably had a, an earlier appreciation of it and probably a more profound appreciation as well. And, I, and I'd, I'd kind of extend mm. that um, picture about education, what goes on at school, to include what you said earlier about preference. Because I, I suspect there may be some 13, 14, 15-year-olds who know, I, I, I love motor mechanics, that's just what I want to do. Mm. That's my preference. And then there are others, you know, maybe like us, who would go, there's lots of stuff I'm interested in, and I don't really want to say I want to just do biology. You know, there's lots, and there's lots, of, and it's also dependent on context. There's lots of subjects that various teachers let fire under because of who they were as people. And I remember a particular chemistry and physics teacher who lit a fire under me around that. And it was purely because of the way he would describe things, like he would say that a blob of this stuff and he spoke to us like we were people and it wasn't 
geeky and it was fun and it was cool and and um, I was delighted the other day when I was looking at an old manuscript by a scientist in the British Library and he had written a blob of this stuff and I went it was a technical term I'm delightful <laughs> but he lit a he lit a fire under me around that stuff as did you know other teachers and other things so I think it's again about that fluidity of our education systems being responsive to the needs can we get the needs of the, of the young people met yeah. yeah I mean I you know I think of the the individual who knows they want to be a doctor for example yeah. mm. and so at a young age they're having to study all the sciences yeah. and and they'll have to do their A levels in all the sciences but why shouldn't they be allowed to do music as well right. you know, why, why can't they do music too because right. you look at some of our great scientists of the past century and they had a a deep interest in the arts absolutely some of them were proficient musicians some of them could write in you know like write literature as well absolutely. as study science and the it's all about broadening the mind and absolutely and, and, and yeah. different disciplines in your and if you study to be a doctor you you uh, i think i haven't studied for a doctor but or a lawyer or something you you learn to think in one way one thing and you're really good at it i mean i have a cousin who's who's like uh, a child physician and mm. the amount of years that he had to study to become that was like I mean, I was like, are you yeah. kidding me? I mean, seriously? And, but, you know, it was his thing, but he probably has a very limited, well, I'm not going to say limited, but a very specific way of thinking about things. And if you're, if you add art, uh, any art, music, uh, music or, or painting or whatever, into that mix, then um, there's a much bigger chance that he's going to be able to think outside the box instead of, you know, staying inside of the box. Mm. Um, yeah. Well, it's I'm, important, right? To be. Yeah. Sorry. Go I'm on. I'm just. I'm just thinking. I, I'm. Yeah. I'm thinking. It's time we probably wound up this conversation. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, ooh. That was a delight to. Ooh. We're close up on an hour, actually. I know. It's. It's been a really interesting conversation, and. Um, I will look forward to the next time we can have you in conversation with us, Richard. I look forward and, to it. Um, I, I wish you all the best. I know that, you, as you said at the beginning, you've just launched yourself as a, as a freelancer, and I wish you all the best with that. And um, anybody who is interested in listening to this podcast will hear um, and see details on the website, rwcast.com. That's correct, isn't it, Rog? rwcast.com. Uh, rwcast, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, to yeah, download, and you'll have, and we'll we'll put episode, links, we'll put links to eleven. Episode eleven. We'll put links to Richard's blog on there as well for those of you who want to read, and I highly recommend it. Well, thank you so, very much for having absolutely, me. Absolutely, absolutely. It's been good. Um, yeah. Well, you can contact all the contact information for for Mark, uh, for Richard are going to be in in the the, the show notes, and if you're just listening it, you can find them. Easily on Twitter, on Indologenesis, and I would have said it like just like Indologenesis, but just to, to pronunciate it correctly in order for people to actually type it correctly. So, uh, yes, Richard, thank you very much. Very interesting. Uh, I do like to make this the the promise that we're gonna get back to you at some point and uh, dig a little deeper 
and uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, find out more about what's going on in your head <laughs> and maybe an update on the book or something. Sure. Uh, that would be good. Yes. Okay. Uh, you can finish it off. Uh, Richard, do you have anything to say uh, as a closure? <laughs> well, just just thank you for having me on the show. I've enjoyed it very much, and I'll be very glad to come back and talk some more. Great, that's that's Great. perfect. Okay, so until next yeah, time, we'll make that happen. It's um, okay. It's, it's cheerio from us. Until next time. Yeah.